We've come down one steep hill, from the shrine where aspiring students pray for success in their exams. We're about to climb another, where some of the shoguns are buried and where the modern state polices national culture. In the middle, though, we have this pond, Shinobazu Pond in Ueno Park. It was laid out 400 years ago, when the shoguns were trying to create a capital that mimicked and so rivaled Kyoto. It was a famous place by the early 19th century, depicted by Hiroshige through a famous moon pine tree in front of a temple up on the hill. Then, in the late 19th century, it started changing again, with a zoo and a lot of recreation. Today, we've got people pedaling boats. In a week or so, they'll be picnicking under the cherry trees. The sacred and the secular are always closer than we'd think. Welcome to Historicity, where we turn back time to see how cities got to be the way they are. I'm Angus Lockyer. I've been teaching and writing history for over 20 years. But when I want to think about how the past became the present and where we might go next, I head outside, walk the streets and pick apart the layers. And I'm Jelena Sofronievich. I'm fascinated by the way that history and politics and culture intersect. How our imperial pasts have left their trace on our material present, not least in the streets. In this walk, we're exploring Tokyo's low city, the flatlands northeast of the imperial palace, much of it reclaimed from the bay, where commoners settled to serve the early modern military elite, where banks and businesses set up shop from the late 19th century onwards, and where much of the real work of the city continues to be done. As ever, a couple of notes before we get underway. We've designed these walks to follow on foot, but we know that you might not be on the streets. You can download maps and transcripts from the episode notes. If you're on the street, you'll find that we're quite fast walkers. But of course, you can listen to this at your own pace. Just change the speed on your podcast app to suit yourself. In this episode, we'll see how everyday life in Tokyo's low city has long revolved around shrines, where you can come to petition the gods for wealth, marriage, exams, and more. The authorities also have had their temples up on the hills, but there too the commoners come to eat, drink, and make merry. But we'll start next to Otano Mizu Station on Hijiribashi, Saint's Bridge, suspended over the Kanda River between two other institutions, one Confucian, one Christian. We'll meet you there. So we're on a bridge over a train station, high over a river. Ahead of us, on the other side of the bridge, we've got some copper roofs in a little grove of trees. Next to them, we've got some tall, tall buildings with a frieze on the front of one of them. Behind us, we've got more tall buildings, mostly nondescript, but there also is a dome with a cross on top. We're above the Kanda River. We met this in the previous episode of this walk. It's an early 17th century creation, and here it's been cut through a mountain. The hills on both sides of this river now used to be one. A bit further upstream, there's a spring which used to provide water for the shogun's tea ceremony, and so the district is called Ochanomizu, the water for tea. During the Edo period, there were lots of warriors around here. Then, as modern times started up, there were universities and there were bookstores. 
and then there's the bridge. It's called Hijiribashi and it was built in 1927. The name was crowdsourced. It means Saint's Bridge because it connects two churches. Behind us, the dome with the cross on top. That's Holy Resurrection Cathedral. It's the centre of the Japanese Orthodox Church. It only has 9,200 members, mind you. The church was completed in 1891 and then rebuilt after the earthquake. And then on the other side, the copper roofs in the grove of trees, that's a Confucian temple, which we'll see in a minute. But these are only two minority religions, two worldviews, if you like, in what we'll find out is a rich, diverse religious landscape. So now we're going to walk towards those copper roofs in the grove of trees. We're going to walk across the bridge, over the road on the other side of the river, and then turn right down into the Confucian temple. So we've made our way off the street, away from the roar of the traffic and into this blissful quiet of this austere temple surrounded by trees with birds, which we can finally hear. This is Yoshima Sedo. We're in the courtyard facing the main hall, a very large, black, copper-roofed building with mythical killer sea whales plunging into the water on the roof. In the Tokugawa period, in the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries, there's a growing interest in Confucianism there's a Confucian Academy in Ueno, where we're going to end this episode, in the 1630s, which moves here to this site in the 1690s. The state only gets involved 100 years later in the 1790s. It officially sponsors this institution, and it names it Shohei School, after Confucius's supposed birthplace. That school, that academy and its affiliated institutions, closes in the 1870s, but the site is turned to new educational uses. It's where Japan's first teacher's college gets going. There's a library here. There's a museum. Now on the other side of the street, those tall buildings we looked at from the bridge, that's Tokyo's medical and dental university, across the road on the original site of the Confucian school. And this, the temple part of the whole thing, becomes a site of heritage. Nowadays, it includes the world's largest statue of Confucius, supplied by the Lions Club from Taipei in 1975. But it's still a popular place to come and pray for success in entrance exams. It's not the only one. We'll see more in just a minute. In Tokyo, the past never quite disappears. The old gods can still do some work. We'll see this as we climb up the hill across the road. So we're going to leave the temple now. We're going to go back out the way we came in. When we get to the road, we're turning right. And at the end of that road, we're turning right again. We'll find ourselves at the back of this temple, looking again at this huge hall from the other side. Everyone who lives in and writes about Tokyo has come to terms with the difference between the flatlands, 
which we explored in the previous episode, and the hills to the west. Here's sociologist Yoshimi Shunya, emphasising how the landscape allows us to peel back the historical layers. The topography of Tokyo is, is a little bit different from London and New York. The, the characteristics of this city is up and down. We have many here. We have many slopes. We have many valleys. That is a typical characteristic of this city. Tokyo was uh, say established at the east edge of Musashino Hill. So Tokyo has five hills. And uh, between these five hills, uh, we have uh, six rivers, basically. The northeast part of the city is uh, had to say, limited by uh, Sumida River. And then we have Shakuji River, and then we have Kanda River, Shibuya River, uh, Meguro River, and then we have Tama River. So between these hills, is north part of this hill is called Ueno Hill, and next one is Hongo Hill, Kojimachi Hill, Shirogani Hill, and next one is Meguro Obori Hill. So this is basic structure of the city. It is not easy to move one place to the other place on the very, very flat area. Because of this very much complicated topography, you cannot change the landscape at once. The old traces or old memorial places and uh, heritages remain in this city. Ueno here is very much complicated because you need to climb up and you need to go down. And even if you go some of the shrines, Kanda Shrine or Yoshima Shrine, you need to climb up and go, go down. So that's why it is not easy to change all the places located in the valley and the small spaces uh, uh, behind the hill. So in Ueno, old tomb or, or shrine and some of the other things still remain. So you can enjoy a kind of the time machine in this city. Because if you move, you can experience contemporary landscape and modern landscape and medieval landscape or ancient landscape in the same place. We'll find many more old things among the hills in the rest of this episode as we make our way towards Ueno. So we're at the back of the temple now looking at a cherry tree that's just popped next to that rather austere hall. It's quite a contrast, but contrasts is what Tokyo specialises in. We're going to cross this road now over to the pedestrian crossing looking at 7-Eleven and then turn right. Soon we'll find a Tori Gate, the entrance to a Shinto shrine. That's our next stop. So we passed under that big Torrey Gate and we're heading up this gentle hill now, aiming for the red, huge gate we can see in front of us. We're going to go under that too and we'll find ourselves in a shrine.
So we've made our way under that Torrey Gate, up a gentle slope, under a much more elaborate red gate. And now here we are in a compound in front of the main hall of this shrine, Kanda Myojin. The hall itself is red. There are statues all around it. There are petitions to the gods hanging on notice boards, as well as a curious heart-shaped sculpture over to our left. That's next to the Edo Culture Complex. The shrine is nearly 1,300 years old. Originally, though, it was further south in Ōtemachi, where we began our first walk around Tokyo as an imperial capital. It started up by a powerful local lord, who enshrines one of the seven gods of fortune responsible for wealth. He's just behind us, standing on a couple of rice barrels, or maybe sake barrels. The land itself, though, belongs to Isei-jingu, which is the most important imperial shrine down near Nagoya. And so this area, back down near Otemachi, becomes known as the deity's fields, Kanda, which we met in the first episode of this walk. Then, in the early 10th century, the regime is losing its grip. There's a rebel, Taira no Masakaru. He's defeated, he's decapitated, and his head is brought all the way here from Kyoto and buried close to the shrine. But his curse, even though he's decapitated, is still feared. Then, in the early 14th century, there's an epidemic. So a service is held to lift the curse of the defeated warrior, and he's enshrined here. If you pray to him, you also win in battle, which is useful. Fast forward three centuries, the Tokugawa come to town. A place like this is a little bit disturbing, with a curse attached. So what to do? Will they move the shrine further away from the castle to dilute its power? They also recruit it, and so a new festival starts up commemorating their great victory at Sekigahara. It's still probably the most important of three big, big Tokyo festivals. Over the years, though, there's been a shift to the neighborhoods, with 200 portable shrines parading through the streets. The shrine, though, isn't frozen in time, obviously, as we look around. At the end of the 19th century, the modern state begins to mobilize Shinto, what it now calls Shinto. But Taira no Masakado, remember, is a rebel, and that's a problem. So he's banished. He gets sent out of the city. And another of these seven gods of fortune arrives here from another shrine, 100 kilometers to the northeast. That one is particularly responsible for business prosperity, and so businessmen start coming here in droves, praying for success. It continues to evolve, of course. It's destroyed during the earthquake. In 1934, it's replaced by a steel-reinforced concrete structure. Tyra Nomasakado, the rebel, actually returns to the shrine in 1984, thanks to popular demand. It's also this shrine close to Akihabara, where we ended the previous episode. And so the shrine features in some of the anime we saw on the huge posters on the buildings there. He blesses electronic devices. The shrine's been exploiting this. We're seeing the Edo Culture Complex, a new building which started up in 2018 to exploit the long connection with the past. This shrine, like many, tells a story that reveals much about the push and pull between spiritual power acknowledged by all, mobilized by the people on the ground, and temporal power hoarded by the authorities. It also shows us how institutions can evolve in response to demand. We'll see it again and again in this episode and the next. So we're going to leave the shrine now. We're walking around the main hall and we're going to exit via the rear down a steep hill.
So we're coming to the back of the train now. We've got all sorts of other subsidiary trains, including yet another Inari train. So again, we're heading out the back of the shrine, down the steep slope, the stairs we can see in front of us, and soon we'll hear the traffic roaring again. So the traffic is roaring again. Ahead of us we can see another hill on the other side of this busy road and we're going to climb that not from the alley we can see directly in front of us but the road to the right. To get there we're going to have to go down the busy road, cross the pedestrian crossing and come back up the other side. So we've made our way across this busy road. Unfortunately, road signs in Tokyo, in Japan, are very sparse. Looking back over the road, we're directly opposite the Shoei Gallery Tokyo. We're turning our back on that and making our way up the road we can see ahead of us. We're going to follow this for quite a while until it comes to an end, across quite a few cross streets. We'll meet you when we get there. In our walk around the palace, imperial capital, historian Jinai Hidenobu helped us understand why we find shrines where we do in the city, by the water and up in the hills. Here he is again, underlining how they provide space for different activities and ways of being. For Japanese inhabitants, sacred area of shrine could have another kind of activity, theater or event space not normal day activity, special specific meaning, mountain, natural elements, greenery, forests are important. So people enjoy, can enjoy also changing process of different seasons. Minzokugaku, folklore, but a little bit different, is very important. This explains very clearly a Japanese way of thinking and lifestyle relationship of people, etc. In Japanese, we say, hare to ke. Hare is special, festival, different from normal rhythm of life. Ke is normal life. This can be uh, used for difference of time and difference of space. Space of ke is here, and space of hare inside. This kind of <laughs> sensibility is very important to understand the total uh, atmosphere of the city or condition of life <laughs> of people. Especially Tokyo is difficult to uh, understand only through books or the maps. And uh, deepness, we say very often, deepness of the space. So important things are hidden behind surrounded by, for example, forests located in the middle of the uh, hill. This kind of uh, sequence, we cannot understand only reading book. We can feel this kind of changing process of sequence only walking with body and with eye, with head, <laughs> with heart. We can understand deeply the meaning of the place and the relationship between many different elements which compose a form of our space. 
we'll see the contrast between secular and sacred again and again in this walk and in our other walks in Tokyo. We've come to the end of that long winding road now. We've got a block of contemporary apartments ahead of us. We're turning left here, then right at the traffic light, and under the Tori Gate we'll see directly in front of us. So here we are in yet another shrine. This is Yoshima Tenjin. We're in front of the main hall. This is much more austere than the shrine we just left. Brightly colored, that one. This one in plain wood, surrounded by other sober structures. We're next to some plum trees, too. They're appropriate for the deity whose home this is. This shrine is even older than the one we just left. Supposedly, it was founded in 458 to enshrine Ame no Tajikaro Mikoto, who is known for their strength. They're the deity who waited by the cave to pull out the sun goddess, who was sulking inside. Her brother had behaved very badly, but she was lured out with a lewd dance which made the other deities laugh. And so light came back to the world, which was a very good thing. Fast forward a thousand years. In the middle of the 14th century, the locals around here petitioned to get Tenjin enshrined too. Tenjin was originally Sugawara no Michizane, a famous late 9th century scholar, poet and politician who died in exile in Kyushu. Thirty years later, Kyoto was struck by disaster, which of course must have been his angry spirit, and so the court restored his rank and he was enshrined in Kyoto and in Kyushu. Gradually, over the years, he changed, though, from a bringer of natural disaster to a patron of scholars, and this shrine in the 17th century, took off in Edo. Students still come here and hang votive tablets so that they can be successful in their exams, the entrance exams to the universities which are clustered around us. And they come when the 300 plum trees we see in the grove next to the shrine are flowering. So you've got religion, myth, literature and learning all entwined. Here's why. When Sugawara no Michizane went into exile, he said goodbye to the trees in his garden in Kyoto, with poems, of course. This is the one he wrote for the plum. Kochi fukaba, nioe okoseo, ume no hana aruji nashi tote, haruna wasurana. When the east wind blows, let it send your fragrance, O plum blossoms. Although your master is gone, do not forget the spring. He asks the cherry the same thing, to keep blooming, to send its fragrance, to show it hasn't forgotten him. The plum, though, is so moved that it flies to Kyushu to join him. The cherry stays behind, feels neglected, withers and dies. In the first half of this episode, we've discovered a story about faith that grows from the ground up with deep roots and continues to fruit in the present. In the second, we'll see some places where religion has been imposed from the top down. Now, though, we'll take a break. Welcome back. 
So far in this episode, we've discovered shrines and deities who can help us with wealth and marriage and exams. Now, we're going to see the state trying to make its subjects believe, either in its own authority or in the stories it tells about the world. Still, though, it never gets its own way. We're leaving the shrine now. Again, we're going to head around the back of the main hall, down the stairs and out onto the busy street. We'll meet you there. So we're at the bottom of the steps leading out of the shrine and we're again on another very busy road. Right across from us, we've got a couple of blocks of condos. These were built in the late 60s and they look like it, but they're still quite valuable. We're going to cross the road and leave the condos on our left. But to get there, we're going to have to walk down the slope, cross the pedestrian crossing and come back the other side. We'll meet you there. So we've made our way across that busy road and now we're heading down the street. Between the 60s condos on our left, a construction site on our right with a slightly dodgy looking Hotel United right ahead of us. We're not going to get as far as the hotel. We're going to take the first left round the back of the condos. The road curves round again, and on our left we've got what looks like and is a huge estate with trees up on the hill above us. These are the former gardens of the Iwasaki Mansion. It was a lord's estate back in the day, but at the end of the 19th century it was bought by the third president of Mitsubishi. We heard a lot about them in our walk around the imperial capital. He gets Josiah Conder, the fashionable European architect of the day, to design him a mansion. And he comes up with a two-story main building. It's Jacobean with Islamic motifs, as well as a Philadelphia-style country house colonnade. Iwasaki had just graduated from the University of Pennsylvania. He also builds him a Swiss mountain chalet-style billiards house, and then there are Japanese-style structures too. The whole estate is nearly 50,000 square meters. So it's a prime target for the occupation authorities at the end of the Second World War. It's then used by the Supreme Court until the 1970, which demolishes most of the buildings. The mansion's been saved. It's an important cultural asset. But the current grounds are less than half their original size. We'll continue down this street now to the next corner, 
with the red brick wall surrounding this Iwasaki estate on our left. We've come to the end of the street, the red brick wall curves away to our left, up a hill, and beyond it we can see a huge building, which is the University of Tokyo Hospital, built on yet another lordly estate. The university was established in 1877, amalgamating many earlier institutions, including the Shohei School, where we started this walk. It now has over a thousand faculty, 30,000 students. It's the best university in Japan, according to most people, number six in Asia, number 23 in the world. But we're turning right here, away from the university, and heading down towards the traffic lights and the trees we can see beyond them. another busy road. We're going to cross this and walk directly into the park we can see in front of us, following the path as it curves through the middle of a pond. So here we are on a path leading through this pond, Shinobazu Pond in Ueno Park. But we're still quite close to the city. There's construction going on. We're here in March, and the path is lined by two rows of cherries, and we're sitting on a bench beneath the first one to be flowering. Soon this place will be heaving with picnickers. Originally, though, this is a cove in Edo Bay. The sea withdraws, leaving marshes, and over the years, they're turned into what we see today. The name Shinobazu is an old one, but its current configuration, like most things we're seeing in Tokyo, dates from the early 17th century, when a temple is built up on the hill to mimic the landscape and the layout of Kyoto, particularly a huge lake near Kyoto, Lake Biwa, which has a small island close to the shore. And so the shoguns build an island, and on it there's a shrine to Benten. She's a patron of literature and music. She's associated with the sea, so it's appropriate that she's here. She's another of the seven lucky gods. We've met some of the others. She rides a dragon. She uses a white serpent as her messenger. By the early 19th century, then, this pond is a famous place for people who live in Edo and from people elsewhere. Hiroshige depicts it multiple times. The most famous is probably the pond seen through a moon pine tree up on the hill. But then, in the late 19th century, things start changing again. In 1884, a horse racing track is built to the north. In 1907, a bridge is built for an industrial exhibition. And then in 1929, it's divided into four parts, more or less as we see it today. There are more exhibitions. Some of them have flying boats landing on this pond. By 1939, you can start renting boats here to pedal around. We've got a boat pond on the left. We've got a lotus pond with the dead lotus plants coming out of the water on our right. Over to our north, there's a cormorant pond, and that is part of the zoo. So we're going to continue on this path now. We're going to go over to the shrine island, circle around the shrine, and walk across the bridge to the other side of the pond. We've made our way around the shrine now. Over on our left, we've got one of the entrances to Ueno Zoo. 
We're going to cross the road in front of us, head directly up the stairs. At the top of that, we can see Hiroshige's moon pine tree. We'll meet you there. So we've made it up those stairs. We're looking up at the moon pine tree, which sits in front of a temple. It's one of many that stuff this park still to this day. 200 years ago, the whole hill was a religious complex which stretched up the hill we can see to our left between this avenue of cherries. Today, it's a park. The story of how that happened comes in two parts. The first part is the early 17th century. There's not much here before the Tokugawa come to town. We're at the tip of a 20-metre-high plateau. The castle is further south. The commoners are closer to the water, as we've already discovered in earlier walks. The lords build some mansions here. Then in 1622, the second shogun learns from a priest that bad things come from the northeast. It's the demon gate. So the shogun gives the priest some land for a temple to protect the castle and the dynasty. This is Kan-eiji. It's also modelled on something in Kyoto, Enryakuji, which sits on Hiezan, the northeast of that city. And soon enough, the whole hill becomes a temple town, with sub-temples and cemeteries and other religious sites, which we'll see as we walk towards what was originally the residence of the chief priest. Over time, too, six out of the 15 Tokugawa shoguns are buried here. If we walk past the temple in front of us, over the other side of the hill, we'd soon find ourselves in a bustling area around Ueno Station. That opened in 1883 as the gateway from Tokyo to the north. It had Tokyo's first coffee shop in 1888. It was a centre for male prostitution in the early 20th century, and it became a famous black market after the war. But we'll see more examples of how stations spawn activity in another walk about Neo-Tokyo. Instead, we're turning left in front of the temple, and we're going to walk uphill through this avenue of cherries. As we're continuing up the hill, we've got more shrines. We've got one to Inari and the seven gods of fortune who we've met in previous episodes and previous walks. We've got the remains of a big, big Buddha that was destroyed in the earthquake and then his body melted down for metal during the war. Only his head survives. Over to our left now, we've got a totem pole. Beyond that is another shrine. It's the most important shrine on the hill. This is the Toshogu. 
It's not the original. The original is 150 kilometers north of us in Nikko. But it's the place where the founder of the Tokugawa dynasty, Ieyasu, is enshrined. This one here is built in 1627 as part of the bigger temple. It's massively elaborate. But we're continuing on to the plaza we can now see opening out ahead of us. So we've come to the end of that avenue of cherries and we're in this huge plaza. Ahead of us, we've got an austere cream building. Over to our left, a low-slung red brick one. So, to pick up the story, by the end of the 17th century, Ueno is a temple town, but it's also a famous place. In 1698, the temple actually gives permission for commoners to come here just to view the cherry blossoms. In 1699, they permit a tea house. Looking around this plaza now, though, it's clear it's since been overwritten by very different forms of faith. In 1868, Japan is at war. The Tokugawa are on the way out, the shogun has resigned, but the transition is a violent one. The clashes start down in Kyoto, so the shogun retreats here, to this hill, to this temple, and he's surrounded by loyalist troops. The revolutionaries come, they attack them from two directions, and they also shell them from across the valley where the University of Tokyo now sits. The shogun surrenders, the rump of his army flees north, the temple is destroyed. Soon, the site, the hill as a whole, becomes a very different kind of place. In 1873, it becomes a park. In 1877, the government holds the first national industrial exhibition to get the economy going. It's the first of many over about 50 years. The museum and the zoo on our left open in 1882. And then more museums. A metropolitan art museum and science museum in 1926. An underground railway for all the people who are coming here in 1933. And then the cream building directly in front of us, the new main building for what's then an imperial museum. That's finished in 1937 with this roof. It's called the imperial crown style. And then after the war, more museums. The National Museum of Western Art, that comes in 1959, that's by Le Corbusier. It's his only building out here. And then further additions to all of these in the years since as well as my favourite building, perhaps, in the corner of the plaza, a very weird Dalek-shaped police box. That came in 1990. So Tokyo today stands with other global cities, with this familiar model of museums in a park. Ueno echoes South Kensington in London, a city we've walked through before. It echoes Central Park in New York, where we hope to go one day. But Ueno also is part of this older, stranger landscape which continues to exert its pull. We'll see this at the last stop. We're going to leave the park now. We'll walk past Starbucks, we'll leave it on our left, and then we'll branch left through a grove of trees, aiming for the northwest corner of the park. Here's Yoshimi again, peeling back the layers of Ueno underlining the way the past lives on in the present. I think Ueno is a very typical case uh, where we can still see the past and we can still see some kind of the trajectory and multiple layers of the present and past very well. Because even if 
you only can see on the surface in the Ueno Park and modern museum image of the modern Western world. But if you walk around deeply in Ueno, you still can see the ancient times Tokyo. Everything, every memory of those times still exists in Ueno. Uh, behind Ueno Zoo, behind Ueno Museum, you still can see wonderful and amazing temple of Ueno Toshoku, the beautiful temple and pagoda. So you still can see those buildings from 17th century in Ueno. And also you can see some of the memory in the war in Ueno in 1868. Ueno is the only place where uh, the civil war was taking place or held in the moment of the major restoration. As I said, Sasumai Choshu came to Edo, and some of the samurai and the people who insist on Tokugawa shogunate tried to fight against military, and they fight against Sasumai Choshu in Ueno. So Ueno is the only place the exact and actual battlefield. So, so many, many people were killed. Uh, they were called as shoji tai, and their tomb, very small tomb, the very near to the uh, entrance gate in Ueno. And also, uh, Ueno still has the memory of the ancient times. Uh, in Ueno Hill, uh, you can see some of the old ancient tomb still today. You can climb up the old ancient tomb within the Ueno Park. People don't know. So Ueno has everything. We uncovered traces of violence in our walk around the palace. We'll see more in the next episode of this walk, Next to the River. So we've made our way to the northwest corner of the park, and we're in another small little plaza. We passed the original site of the main hall of the temple. We'll see its replacement in a minute. Across the street, behind the trees, we can see the Horyuji Treasure Gallery of Tokyo National Museum. The temple is down in Nara, built in the 7th century. But then in 1878, the treasures come here. This building was designed in 1999 specially for them by Taniguchi Yoshio. It's exquisite. He then goes on to more or less copy it for MoMA in 2004 in New York. For me, a less successful building. To our left, we've got the old Symphony Hall of the former Tokyo Music Hall, a wooden building from the late 19th century, kitty corner across the street, the campus of the Tokyo University of the Arts. We can also hear the underground rumbling underneath us, and on the other corner, a small stone building, the former station, now defunct. We're going to cross the street to that small building and continue down the street ahead of us, leaving it on our right. We're heading down this street now with the underground still rumbling underneath us. On our right, we've got more buildings from the Tokyo National Museum. On our left, the Kuroda Memorial Hall of the Tokyo University of the Arts. And there's another bastion of culture just beyond that, the International Library of Children's Literature. Ueno, which was once a temple, is now stuffed with culture. We're continuing to the end of this street, 
where we can see a gate to a cemetery waiting for us. We've reached the end of that street now. Over to our right, we glimpsed a soaring tower. We'll hear much more about that in the next episode. But we've passed through a gate adorned with hollyhock emblems, which tells us that the Tokugawa are close by. This is the cemetery of Kan-Eiji, that temple that burned in 1868, and where six out of the 15 shoguns are buried. We're now standing in front of a red gate over on the right. This is the entrance to the mausoleum of one of them. Tokugawa Tsunayoshi ruled at the end of the 17th century when good times in Edo were beginning to roll. He sought his guidance in the classics. He became very observant. He tried to raise the living standards of his people. He also tried to ban prostitution, which was never going anywhere. He also tried to save all the dogs with a series of edicts on compassion for living things. And so, inevitably, he became known as the Dog Shogun. None of it had much effect. In 1704, his heir died. In 1706, the city was hit by a typhoon. In 1707, Fuji erupted. And in 1709, he dies and is buried here. The temple, of course, burns in 1868 and relocates here. Most of the buildings in the cemetery are then destroyed in 1945. We'll hear much more about that in the next episode. But the gate survives. This isn't where religion stops, of course, as if it could. Down the lane, there are other mausolea for other shoguns. To our left, there's the displaced temple. Beyond it, there's a cemetery with 7,000 graves. And on the slope leading down the hill on the other side, there are multiple smaller temples. Even in the early 21st century, this part of Tokyo remains a temple town. Secular power passes away, but the gods are always with us. They also want us to have some fun while we're around. We'll see this again in our next episode, which starts with consolation and ends with entertainment. We'll begin it in another temple, Ekoin, a few hundred meters south of Ryogoku Station, famous for sumo. We'll see you there. Historicity is written and presented by Angus Lockyer and produced by Jelena Sofronievich. See the episode notes for the other walks and follow Historicity wherever you get your podcasts.